This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, and oftentimes that's using a meat based elimination diet to do some gut healing. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe and hit the red button. Or on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or like this and leave a five star review, as this is the way that I can get my content out to more people. Okay, so I'm chuckling a little bit because I'm thinking of how to introduce this intro of Dr. Anthony Chafee, but you definitely don't want to miss this interview. So, Dr. Anthony Chafee is an American medical doctor in his neurosurgical residency, and he's a former professional rugby player who, over the span of his 20 years of his athletic university, And medical careers researched optimal nutrition for human performance and health. He realized that a lot of what we do and what doctors treat can be altered with the food we eat or what we don't eat, and how it can be reversed with dietary changes to a species appropriate diet, also known as a carnivore diet or a meat only diet. Um, Dr. Anthony Chafee has a new podcast or a relatively new podcast called The Plant Free MD. I think that makes so much sense. And it's such a smart way to label carnivore. Instead of saying carnivore, you could just say plant free. So I'm excited for you guys to listen to this conversation. We talk about a lot of things that are controversial in the carnivore space lately, or maybe the last year. That's why I'm chuckling a little bit because we go through just the nuances and just get into the nitty gritty of what is being said and whether there's any weight to it and just what do we do with this information and what it all means. And we also talk about Dr. Chafee's Experience with the carnivore diet, how he's been doing it for a cumulative of 10 years, and how he's healthy, how he doesn't take testosterone, how his testosterone is healthy, and how he doesn't add any plants to his diet. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Anthony Chafee. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast and YouTube channel. I know you've been around and you've been carnivore for a while, but there might be some people that don't know you. So if you can introduce yourself and share a little bit about your carnivore journey and how long you've been eating a meat 
based or meat only diet. Yeah, well, hello and good morning. And well, my morning. And uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. I've been sort of actively in in the sort of the carnivore, you know, research and, and discussion sort of phase for the last four or five years. But I started, it was really about 20 years ago when I was taking cancer biology in university. And we sort of went over, you know, the natural ability of plants to defend themselves by being poisonous. And so we were talking about this from a cancer perspective and found out all these hundreds of different carcinogens and various plants and so forth. Like Brussels sprouts had 136 carcinogens, mushrooms had over a hundred and so forth. And all these things had dozens each. And, and we were very taken aback by this. And our, our professor just pointed out that, you know, this is the evolutionary nature of plants because they can't defend themselves um, by running away or fighting back. So they need to use other methods. And one of those methods is by being poisonous. And we were, I was then thinking, I was like, well, but, but then overall is aren't, you know, plants, you know, vegetables still good for you. But he pointed out that there were 10,000 times more naturally occurring poisons in vegetables than the pesticides we spray on them. And those were a thousand times more likely to cause cancer than the pesticides we spray on them. We've known that since the 1980s with uh, professor Bruce Ames from Berkeley paper that he published in uh, 1989, which is why we still have pesticides. They they were trying to ban pesticides and he sort of just came out and said, well, no, we've been using pesticides for 80 years. They've never caused a problem. So they shouldn't be causing new problems. And he, and he came out with that research. So we were quite taken aback by that. And he just said that, you know, he didn't eat, you know, salads. He didn't eat vegetables. He didn't let his kids eat vegetables. Wow. Plants are trying to kill you. And it really stuck with me. And so I just went to the grocery store. I started looking for anything that didn't have a plant and it was just everything had plants in it or grains or something, everything had it mixed in. So I ended up just buying eggs meat and milk. And I just, I just ate that for, you know, probably just exclusively for five years while I was playing, you know, professional rugby and, you know, traveling and, and also in university. And so I was, I was training at a very high level, you know, eight, 10 hours a day on top of my university uh, schedule. And I, I just absolutely felt amazing. I ended up slipping off of that when I went to Europe uh, to play professionally in England. And I just couldn't, I couldn't really get access to the same kind of meat. It was, uh, it was a bit different and some of it was breaded and so forth. And I remember thinking, I was like, well, it's a bread that much of a difference. It's a plant, but you know, maybe it's a little bit of a plant. And so I just sort of started slipping off of it. And I remember a couple months later, I'm thinking like, why don't I feel it's just unbelievably amazing as I normally do? Why am I not? My body is not working the same way. And I was, I was 25. So I was like, well, maybe I'm over the hump. That's it. Maybe people just start dying after 25, you know, I'm getting approaching 30 and so forth. But it was, it was sort of years later that I, you know, came across more arguments and evidence that, you know, humans as an animal, as a species really are carnivores. And it just clicked in. It was like, that's what I was doing. I was actually living as a carnivore and I was eating, you know, an ancestral diet and, and and I felt absolutely amazing. And I was like, right, I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me. Like get rid of these stupid things. And, and that's, that's where I got back into it about, you know, four or five years ago. But since then I've, I've been on, you know, shows like, you know, with, you know, Dr. Sean Baker and, and others, and uh, more recently started my own podcast, the plant free MD and my YouTube channel. And I've been more active on Instagram just to try to get this message out there because I've been, you know, I've been very interested in it. I've been trying to help people with it, but I figured that if I, if I don't, you know, sort of get out there, then I, you know, what well, I can, I just, you know, can help more people if I get the message out. No, and it's so important. And so I applaud you for doing it. I mean, I know it takes a lot of time and effort personally, so I, I get it. But yeah. thank you for taking that time to share because it's really important. And a lot of people like the letters behind the name and it just gives authority and it's okay. So this doctor may not be my doctor, but this doctor mm. says it's okay to not eat plants. And I think that's a yeah. really important thing to do. So thank you for that. So being in the carnivore community for, you know, past a decade, obviously you probably have seen a lot of the content. I think it 
comes in waves about carbs being essential, Mm. even though it may not be from a nutrient perspective, but people say that we need carbs for optimal health. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I would would actually think the opposite. Uh, I think when, when people are talking about what they can do to improve their health through diet, the first thing I tell them is to get rid of carbohydrates and sugar, sugar really, especially fructose is, is quite toxic. And there's you know, very, very hard scientific you know, medicine is, is honestly, it's a soft science. You know, we, we, we look at things and some things are based on hard science and other things are, are based on best guess. We have, we have a bit of information. We have a constellation of problems and we go, Ooh, this, this kind of looks like this would fit physiologically. And it, it may be based on hard scientific principles, but you don't necessarily have the hard evidence behind it. And I just, I've just noticed this, that quite a lot of things are based on best guesses and they just get repeated so often that then it's just, it's just dogma. So with the carbohydrates and, and, well, and that's what I was saying about, about the fructose, there's, there's, that's actually based on hard science. There's hard biochemical science from the University of California in San Francisco showing that fructose is metabolized and broken down into the same byproducts by your liver as alcohol. And so you get the same problems of you know, affecting your health from fructose fructose from those breakdown products as you do from alcohol. So you don't, you don't get necessarily the same issues before it's broken down, but you get all the problems when it's after it's broken down. So, and they're significant. So carbohydrates, especially I, I try to warn people away from, you know, very simply it, it fundamentally changes your biochemistry and your metabolic you know, energy mobilization. So um, we think of this as you know, a fed state and a fasting state. When I was taking biochemistry in my undergraduate degree, that's how it was portrayed. You know, When you eat, this is what your metabolism looks like. And when you stop eating for 24 hours, it switches over to this fasting metabolism. But when you eat anything except carbohydrates, it also you know, switches to that so-called fasting metabolism. And there's, there are tons of studies showing the benefits of fasting, or you know, maybe you can't fast, so you go on a fasting mimicking diet. And there's a lot of studies showing that you can even reverse type one and type two diabetes with this way and other sorts of illnesses. And so, and then people say, well, maybe that's, maybe that's the benefit of a carnivore diet is you're in this, you're, you're mimicking a fasting metabolism. I was like, well, maybe the benefit of fasting is that you're mimicking a carnivore metabolism, your primary metabolism. So I would argue that that's your primary metabolism. When you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar goes up. This causes direct damage to your body through glycation. And uh, this is really bad for you. This is what kills diabetics. So your blood sugar goes up. And in a defensive response, your body raises insulin to try to get this out of your blood system as quickly as possible. So it just forces this energy into cells as quickly as possible. And you get, you know, get energy for, for uh, obviously activity, but you also get muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, and fat. So insulin blocks proteolysis, it blocks uh, lipolysis So in, in layman's terms. It forces energy into cells, but it doesn't allow it to come out of the cells. So when you eat this this forces energy into your cells, it forces it into your fat cells, and it locks off your fat cells. So now you cannot access them. And now you're reliant on the carbohydrates because your insulin stays up for about 24 hours. Because again, this is just a disaster you know, mentality. It's just like, we need to just hazmat control, just get out of here as quick as possible. And so it's, a, it's, it's an overreaction sort of thing. And so now your blood sugar is dropping low and you feel horrible because you can't mobilize your fat cells. And so what do you do? You eat more carbs because you have to eat eat carbs to burn carbs, as they've been saying for 50 years. It's not true. It also does something more insidious, which it blocks a hormone called leptin. We don't think of this as from stretch receptors in our stomach when you eat and it stretches out your stomach and you do uh, duodenum that it put off leptin. And this tells your brain that you're full and you don't need to eat anymore. That's true. But the majority of it is produced by your adipose tissue, your fat cells. And that tells your brain exactly how much energy you have. And so when you eat carbohydrates, this raises your insulin, your insulin blocks leptin, and now your brain can't see how much energy you have. And so you, and now your blood sugar 
dropping. So the signal that your brain is getting is that you have zero energy reserves and your blood sugar is plummeting. And so it sends this panic signal that says, if you don't eat now, you will die. And this is why three times a day, we just go like, I'm starving. I'm starving. I have to eat and get hangry and upset and really, really agitated because we are getting these very primal instinctual signals that we're going to die and we have to eat. Even if you know we're very obviously calorie overloaded, we are getting that signal and this causes people to overeat. It's caused people to get unwell from a lot of uh, reasons. So there's a lot of people that say, well, a ketogenic diet, this tricks your body into thinking it's starving to death and you get, you go into this shock state and all that. I completely disagree with that. I think that is our primary metabolic state. That is where our, our heavy, all of our heavy machinery biochemically comes to bear. Um, and you know, that that's the primary metabolic state of, of animals in the wild. We have studies going back to 1981, looking at wolves saying, you know, well, you know, do you need, you need to eat carbs, or burn carbs, but you know, they don't carbo load before they chase caribou for 10 hours. So, you know, do they have blood sugar? Do they have liver glycogen, muscle glycogen? If I'm not, yes, they do. And it's rock solid. It does not change no matter what they're doing. Their blood sugars here, their glycogen's there. And you know, if you carbo load and you, and you try to build up glycogen in your liver, you will have, well, studies have shown that you'll have three times the amount of liver glycogen as say, you know, you or I would who don't eat carbohydrates, but our liver glycogen is constantly being replenished. And so actually our reservoir is actually unlimited because it's, that's based on our fat stores, as opposed to them, there's three times higher at first, but then it'll go down to nothing because right. they, they can't mobilize their fat stores. And I think of that as, you know, when people talk about like, endurance uh, athletes or high performance athletes and so forth. When you, when you push and you push and you push, uh, there's certainly something that was always related to me as a kid, you push and you hit the wall and you just run out of energy and, and you just feel like you're just done. Most people stop at that point because you feel wretched, but if you keep pushing and you push and you push and you push and you break through the wall, then you can get into your second wind and your runner's high and all these different sorts of terminology for it. What that is biochemically is you're in a carbohydrate driven insulin dependent or insulin uh, excess state and you've locked off your, your fat cells. And so you run and you run until you run out of your glycogen and then you hit the wall because you can't mobilize anything new and you feel wretched. But if you it normally takes about 24 hours for the insulin to come down, your body to start working normally. But if you push and you push and you push, you'll break, you'll, you'll convert your metabolism to, to start you know, producing energy again. And then you feel great and you, you have unlimited energy. You can just go forever. You know, it was like, well, you know, you and I, and other people in this you know, world, we live in that Right. Second wind. We live in that uh, runner's high state. So the more we exercise, the more energy we mobilize, the better we feel. So it's a positive feedback loop. We want to work out harder. So, you know, we also know this for you know, diabetics going back to the 1800s, people put on a ketogenic diet in order to normalize their blood sugars and so forth. So, you know, and, and you just think of native population, native human populations, you know, the, you know, up, up, you know, people talk about, well, maybe the native Americans, you know, maybe they were eating these other things. They really weren't. They were, you know, almost purely carnivores, um, native Australians, same thing. You look at, you know, different documents from, you know, going back to the 1600s and things like that, of explorers talking about, there's always a chapter on diet and they're always marveling that they only eat meat and they're super strong. They live, you know, they don't get the diseases of the West and so forth. And, and, but people say, well, you know, they could have been eating plants and maybe they were, and people mistake the plants that people have traditionally eaten at some point, maybe through starvation or for medicine, you know, conflating that with they eat it every day all the time, which they don't, they just ate meat. But if you look at like the Inuits and the Northern, you know, Siberian tribes and things like that, well, there's no plants for them to eat anyway. It's, you know, they're, they're just in, in, you know, the tundra or even, even the Arctic North where they're, they're just on, on 
you know, iceberg drifts and things like that. There's no place they could eat anyway. So what are they eating? You know, they're not eating any carbs and they don't have all these sorts of issues that people say that you're going to get by being in a, in a prolonged ketogenic state. They're very, very healthy. And there's studies, you know, showing that people, again, it's always, you know, as you know, you always have to read the study as opposed to the conclusion of the study because it may not they may not be connected at all. And there's studies that that show these people don't get heart disease, they don't get diabetes, they don't get the diseases of the West. And then other studies that suggest, oh no, no, yeah, some of them do. But those studies don't separate separate out the ethnic Inuits with the people living traditionally because that's what we really care about. You know, so people going and living in cities and just living as everyone else, as as the rest of the population does and eating all the the same crap that the everyone else does, they're going to get the same diseases as everyone else. So that's not really what we're looking at. We're trying to find people that are only eating meat in their traditional setting. And, and those people we find are exceedingly healthy. So yeah, so long-winded answer, but I think that carbohydrates are, are probably one of the worst things um, uh, to do fructose being the worst of them. And, and I agree with you fully. So I'm just going to ask, um, you know, the questions that I get so often, so I'm just going to mm. throw them at you. So a lot of people will say, well, I'm not diabetic, ancestrally consistent, the plant kingdom, if there are toxins, then obviously they want us to eat their fruit so we can bear their offspring and so, so on and so forth. So if I was non-diabetic, which I am not, and what's so wrong with eating a little bit of fruit, I always bring up the fructose. So maybe we can clarify for the people listening, you know, what is the difference with fructose and glucose and sucrose? But also, yeah. is it that bad for me to eat a meat only diet and then start introducing fruit because fruit seems mm. like the most benign carbohydrate or maybe mm. honey because technically it's from a bee thoughts on that yeah well you know i i yeah i, I get asked a lot just with, with honey well, oh that comes from animals it's like yeah but it's not a part of an animal right that's first of all that's that's actually from a plant that's the concentrated nectar and sugars from that and uh, so my my hard rule isn't just eat animal based it's no plants no sugar nothing artificial. And so sugar, you know, obviously honey falls into the sugar category. You know, there's more fructose in honey than high fructose corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup is the bane of all life. Exactly. You know, as, as what people you know say, and, and honey's worse, you know, and there are other things in honey that maybe have some provide some sort of benefit, but the fructose is certainly not going to, not going to be one of those things. As far as fruit as a, as a general category though, if we think, we think of fruit, all, you know, this is benign, but you know, how many fruits and berries and so forth in the world are deadly poisonous, most of them, know. you know, so there is, so, you know, and, and so yes, a, f a fruit is a seed and, and they want an animal to eat it and move it, but it doesn't necessarily want you to eat it because there's a symbiotic development with different animals and, and plant species where this plant and this animal have evolved together where this animal eats this and it needs to go through that animal's digestion to then germinate the seed. Whereas if it goes through ours, it won't, or maybe we'll just try to eat the meat of the fruit and then we'll drop the seed and the seed won't, seed won't germinate. There's the cassowary bird in, in Australia is, is a very good example of this is the only thing that eats certain fruits. It will, those fruits will kill anything else. And the wow. only way that these seeds are germinated is through the digestion of the cassowary bird. And so if the cassowary bird uh, were to leave the area or, you know, die out in an area, all those plant species would die out as well, because that's the only animal species that, that germinate seeds, nothing, everything else will die from that. So, and you know, how many berries, you know, we, we know that you don't eat red berries, don't eat these sorts of things like that. That's, that's a traditional uh, piece of knowledge. And, and though that's a fruit, you know, it's, it's a seed inside of plant meat and, and it's poisonous. 
So, and, and then some of the things, you know, that don't like we, it's sort of thought that fructose is the sweetest of the, of the carbohydrates because we've recognized this as, as, as safe because there isn't anything with fructose in it that we know of that is acutely poisonous will kill you that day. But that doesn't mean that long-term fructose is a good idea. Maybe it gives you a quick hit of energy. You recognize it as safe. You're starving. You're just sort of tasting things. Oh, that's bitter. That's bitter, which is, you know, our body's way of telling us that's poisonous. If something tastes bitter, something tastes bad, that means there's something in there that our body is telling us not to eat. So just spit it out. Well, this is, oh, okay. That doesn't taste bitter. That doesn't taste that bad. Okay. Maybe I can eat that, get a quick hit of energy and go on from there. But but, you know, you do that more often and you'll get a lot of, a lot of problems as far as, you know, being metabolically healthy and so forth. I I've definitely heard that argument, but it's the same argument as, well, if I don't have lead poisoning, it's okay for me to drink water from leaded pipes every now and then, um, like on my birthday or something like that. This is like, yeah, you could, but that's the thing that's going to make you metabolically sick. So I just, I don't, I don't find that as a compelling argument sure. that if you, I mean, you could, you definitely can. I mean, dose makes the poison. So, you know, if you were to eat a little bit of fruit every now and then, yes, you'd be harming yourself a little bit, but that's, it's a slippery slope because fructose is, is addictive shown in various studies that it gives a dopamine hit to the addiction centers in your brain, just like cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines. And there are MRI studies that actually show that they took, you know, people that were addicted to methamphetamine, you know, you took like URI, someone who doesn't use any of those sorts of things or anyone, you give us like a little bit of uh, amphetamine or something like that. Certain parts of our brain will just light up because of these dopamine receptors. Then you give that same dose to someone who is um, addicted to methamphetamines and that just barely twinkles in those areas, right? You get that same dose to someone who has been eating a lot of sugar and is metabolically unwell, they get that same barely twinkle. So these MRI studies are showing that it kills the same areas of your brain as methamphetamines, that sugar does from the fructose, and to the same extent as methamphetamines. So that's that's quite crazy. Um, and when you think about it, that it's it's addictive like meth, it kills areas of your brain like meth, and it destroys your body like alcohol, causing cirrhosis, diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. You know, this is one of the worst drugs out there. And so you know, we people think that you know a drug is only as, is, is as bad as the high it gives you. So heroin must be really bad. And sugar, ugh, how can that be that bad for you? Heroin's is actually, you know, just to your body, it doesn't actually cause direct damage to your body. It causes you to be very addicted. Mm -hmm. And then you do things that are very damaging to your life and your body to chase that addiction. But we put people, you know, on, on long-term opiates for decades. It doesn't destroy their body. Like say, you know, prednisone would, you know, or even alcohol would. And so fructose, I think is one of the worst drugs on earth specifically because damages your body to such a great extent, but no one even knows it's a drug. No one realizes it. And that's why it's in everything. Just everything that you don't cook has fructose in it. And that's, and, and the, and the food companies know exactly what they're doing. So yes, you can eat some fruit every now and then, but you're, you're playing with fire. You know, I've, I've, I've sort of spoken about that before and you know, people that have had that suggested to them that maybe they can eat honey or fruit sometimes. Um, yeah, you can do cocaine sometimes. The problem is that, that tur sometimes turns into all the time very easily if you're not very careful. And these people found that that's what happened to them. They uh, they started eating a little bit of fruit and a little bit of honey, then a little bit more. And then they started adding a little, well, maybe I can add this back into, oh, maybe this isn't a big deal. And six months later, they're back eating the same stuff that got them you know sick and un unhealthy in the first place. And they put all this weight back on and so forth. And then they're like, okay, all right, I need to, I need to just go back to basics. So maybe some people can do that. Some people can have a drink every now and then or whatever. I mean, I, I, I have a drink of alcohol once every year or two and 
that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem doing that and then leaving it to the side, but that's not, that's not everyone. That's not the majority of people. Right. And, you know, these things do cause harm. They just do. And so, you know, that's, that's something, um, you know, to think about is that, yes, you could probably have some fruit sometimes or some honey sometimes, but sometimes turns into a lot of times and anytime it's going to be harmful. Yeah. And I agree with everything you brought up. I think you mentioned the UCSF study on fructose and the dangers of it or the harm it does mm. to the body. I just interviewed not too long ago, Dr. Richard Johnson. He does mm. so much re- research on fructose and nice. it's really scary how I almost would argue that our diet, the way that we focus on so much meat, and then also sometimes people consuming liver, we're adding a lot of purines to our diet. And then Mm -hmm. adding the fructose just really wakes up that uric acid cycle, which then has arguably a big proponent of causing metabolic syndrome. So Mm -hmm. one of the studies that Dr. Richard Johnson brought up is that they did a rat study where they uh, hypo, they gave less calories to all the rats. So they, none of them really gained weight on a high fructose diet, but their internal organs were starting to show disease. So the point was, even if you look metabolically Mm. healthy, even if you look really good outside, eventually it's going to catch up to you because like you said, fructose is really not ideal for our bodies. And so like you said, the dose makes the poison, but for most people that are willing to try a meat only diet, they're probably pretty sick except for Mm. the biohackers, but even the biohackers, they're probably going the wrong way to try to, you know, optimize health. But if I explain this to people, the biggest question becomes, well, then why do I feel good? Right? Like I feel not so good (laughs) eating meat only. So then Mm. why do I feel good? And I perform better at the gym and I just sleep better at night. And, and now I have more energy eating some carbohydrates, or let's just say specific to fruits and honey? Why do I feel better having that as part of the diet? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you do cocaine, you're going to feel better too. You know, I mean, like it's just, it's just, you know, it it gives you a hit of energy and it gives you, and fructose specifically gives you a hit of dopamine, which is, you know, excitatory molecule and goes, I like that. That's good feeling. And so of course you're going to feel good, you know, and you know, drugs feel good. People like drugs, you know? So of course they're going to like that. And that's, and that's one that people say is like, Oh, but I like fruit. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm sure you'd like smoking too. It's just, there's a difference there. And, and yes, you feel good at first. Like, you know, if you take caffeine, right. You, you feel good in the short run. And then, you know, for the rest of the day, you sort of feel more crummy. And so maybe you take more of that of caffeine, just sort of keep waking up and keep waking you up. It's the same with sugar. It's the same with carbohydrates, right? Because, you know, when you're, when you're eating just normal carbohydrates, you have that you're playing this, you know, insulin blood sugar game, and then you're, you feel good because you got all this energy and, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden it drops down, you have low blood sugar and like, Oh, I got to eat more carbs. And every time you eat carbohydrates, you feel better. And so people look at that and say, Oh, I, I need to be eating carbs. That's what my body wants. And that's, you know, it's an easy conclusion to draw, but you're very much harming yourself in the long run. Whereas if you don't eat carbohydrates at all, you're, you're, you're always going to provide, you know, produce the energy that you need for what you're doing. So sitting here and talking to each other. Now our bodies are producing exact amount of energy to sit here and talk to each other. But when we start exercising, our body starts mobilizing that energy, you know, stimulants feel good. People like them because they make us burn energy. When you burn more energy, you just feel better. Okay. And so when you eat a bunch of carbohydrates, you take these pre-energy drinks, you're burning all this energy and you, and yeah, you feel alive, but 
when you, but then that drops and then you're done and you, and you feel terrible. Whereas, you know, you and I and, and others in, in this world, when we work out, that's when our bodies produce more energy and we feel better. And that's why, you know, I was talking about that positive feedback loop, the harder we work out, the you know, the more, you know, we push ourselves, the more energy we're, we're producing, the more energy we're burning and the better we feel, which makes us want to work out harder. Right. It makes us burn more energy. It makes us feel better. And so I actually get you know, into the, you know, when I go to the gym and things like that, which I, I don't have, you know, time to do as much as I normally would, but, you know, I still obviously try to try to go every now and then, but I, I, you know, sometimes it's weeks between when I can go, but like when I do go, I just feel amazing. I love it. And, and it's hard for me to leave because I want to just keep working out because that makes me feel better. So these people are eating carbohydrates and sugar to feel better. I'm working out to feel better. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely going to help me in the long run as, as opposed to eating carbohydrates. You know, you're talking about like the rat model, which is, yeah, you know, and Dr. Robert Lustig, you know, who did a lot of work in this as well, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. He recently published a series of papers on an experiment that he did with people showing the exact same thing that you were talking about, whereas they, they kept people you know, at the same calories or maybe even dropped calories because they didn't want their weight to change right. uh, because they didn't want it to be caused by weight loss. And they just looked at the people and they, all they did is it was take out fructose, but they kept in the carbs. They kept in, you know, eating, you know, pizza and donuts or sorry, eating pizza and bagels instead of like, you know, donuts and cookies. You know what I mean? So it was, it was still crap still really bad for you, but they just took away the fructose. And these kids who were very metabolically unwell, I think it was like 46 kids. Um, they all had, you know, fatty liver disease. They had, you know, uh, excess, you know, abdominal fat. And in, in just like uh, just over a week, it was like 10 days. They significantly reduced their abdominal fat and their hepatosteatosis. So like the fatty liver issues that they had. And, you know, you just think back historically, Fatty liver disease, you know, was general was was what was recognized as, as a consequence of alcoholism. Same with type two diabetes, which was you know previously adult onset diabetes. I'm sure you remember that, you know, since before the 1990s when I was when I was a kid, I remember that was you know adult onset diabetes and juvenile diabetes. And then in the 1990s, they started coming out with with news stories like oh, like, oh there's a 10 year old. And he's got adult onset diabetes. How can a 10-year-old get adult that's onset diabetes? He's not an adult. And then he also has fatty liver disease. But we only see fatty liver disease in alcoholics. This kid's never had alcohol. So how is that? So instead of thinking and just going, gosh, what's going on here? What have we, what have what's different? They just said, you know, we'll just rename it. You know, now it's type two diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But this this stuff is being caused by fructose, and that was that was very convincingly shown uh, by by Lustig and the biochemistry department at UCSF, which where, where he was a professor. And so, yeah, you know, when you when you eliminate that out, you're going to eliminate this this toxic element. And, you know, and as he's pointed out, there are no biochemical processes that require fructose, none. Right. So there's nothing going on in your body that you have to have fructose for that something else can't do. Like fructose can, you know, go and do things, but there is not required. There it is a non-essential nutrient. You can get energy from it but you, you do not have to have it like right. vitamin A or something like that. You know, you, you need that. And, um, and so, you know, the idea that, you know, for optimal health, you need to include, you know, fruit and fructose like, well, I mean, that just doesn't really carry water at all because it's fructose is specifically not necessary for anything in your body. So it's really only, only giving you a quick hit of energy and then, you know, being a drug. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. 
For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Right. And I, and I fully agree with you. And I just want to clarify for the audience that foods with glucose or table mm. sugar still break down to half of it is pretty much fructose. So it's not like we're saying yeah. just fruit or all the high fructose corn syrup, but even other carbohydrates, glucose, and、um, other types of sugars, an element of it. I think table sugar is like 50% uh, fructose. So some of it will still、yeah. be broken down and then internally can also be produced. To fructose. Switching、mm-hmm. topics a little bit, you know, this kind of goes with the carbohydrates, but, you know, there's a lot of chatter about a lot of people in the space will go, a low carb diet ruined my thyroid, yeah. a yeah. ketogenic or carnivore diet. And so once I've、mm-hmm. added carbohydrates and sugars, now my thyroid、yeah. is functioning, my metabolism is functioning. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, it's not, it's just not borne out by, by the, de- by the data and certainly just not by just thinking about it for a second. You know, we have carnivorous populations that live generationally just on meat. And again, you know, you can look at different populations. Oh, well, they probably ate it, but the Inuits did not. They didn't, they, you know, especially ones in the, in the more, more northern reaches, they, they, they didn't have the, they, they didn't even have the option. Okay. So hypothyroidism、um, is obviously very detrimental to adults. But it is catastrophic to a developing fetus. So, if a mother has、uh, low thyroid while she's pregnant, you get the kid with you know, congenital hypothyroidism, which is also called cretinism. You know, we call people use this as an insult. Now, a lot of, a lot of medical terms are, are now used as insults, but they were actually you know, based on, on, on the medical、uh, terminology. So, cretin, you call someone, oh, you cretin. That's a specific medical illness of, of congenital hypothyroidism. And they get very specific you know, misdevelopment of their face and、um, you know, you know, mental retardation. They, they're very extremely affected. So, this isn't something that we can do generationally. It's not like every now and then with low thyroid, you get this. It's every time. And so, you know, you know, depending on how low you are. But if, if meat and the lack of carbohydrates were to cause hypothyroidism, then you would get. Every single child in the next generation would have cretinism and you would be at the end of your species line. That would just that would be it. And so, throughout all the ice ages and so forth, no option to eat carbohydrates. Up in the North Pole, no option to eat carbohydrates. And yet, these people are extremely healthy and they don't have you know, generational cretinism. So, that on its face, if you just sort of just look at, at the world around you, you know that's not true.、Um, and then also, There are so many people that, like you or I, that don't have these problems.、Right. And there's some people that do. You know, they have, so there's something else going on there, but people focus on one thing and they just go, this must be it. Just like you know, back in the day, it was just like, oh, fat's bad for you. Fat makes you fat. Stop eating fat. And it was just a focus was just here. There's just there's one thing on earth that can be bad for you, and this is it. And we really like to simplify things、uh, over much. And so when you have a complex system and there's a lot of things going on, you know, you have to, you have to sort of think that. You know, it's like people when they go on any dietary change and it works for them, that must be the answer. You know, I talk to people that go vegetarian or vegan. It's like, well, but when I went vegan, I felt so much better. Therefore, meat's bad for you. And I always ask them, it's like, okay, so the only thing you did was you just stopped eating meat. Yeah, that, that was it. I went vegan, everything went great. Fine. So you're still eating cookies, you're drinking soda, you're eating cake, you're drinking alcohol, you're smoking. Oh, no, 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 no. I stopped drinking. I don't eat, I don't eat out. I cook all my food. I don't eat sugar. Like, okay, you've changed a lot of things. 
besides just dropping meat, right. but because you term you know, termed it veganism, you know, you're saying you're only focusing on the meat. So there's a lot more going on there. Sure. So I, you know, I've had, you know, hundreds of patients that I've put on a full carnivore diet and they've always had better success with that. I've done it myself for years. My family's uh, certain members of my family have done it for years and they have been extremely well. I've taken my, my blood. not that I really was worried about it, but I've had a friend of mine who's an endocrinologist who I work with in, you know, functional medicine and so forth out, you know, outside of the hospital. I have a sort of side sort of thing in uh, you know, preventative medicine and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just like, well, you know, you look good. You know, you look like you're healthy, but let's check under the hood and see what's going on. And I've been carnivore for you know a number of years at this point. And, you know, my hormone panel and everything and, and all the different tests and, and, uh, you know, minerals and vitamins, everything like that came back, you know, exceptionally well. And he said that, you know, for, if you took a hundred thousand people off the street, you know, my, that were my age and you did all their bloods, that mine would be number one without a shadow of a doubt. And so that's when he got interested in the carnivore diet and we started talking more about it. And so now he's prescribing this to his patients as well. You know, we're not seeing people that get thyroid issues. We're just not. And, you know, one thing that there are a lot of people that do maybe get, you know, an issue with their thyroid or some, something you have to ask, okay, what else are you doing? What are you doing? That's slightly different. You know, there's Dr. Saladino and carnivore really as they, they have talked about this and said, you know, I think carnivore really is now is saying that uh, he gets 40% of his calories from orange juice. Okay. How is that ancestrally based? You know, like where you know, where's that coming down uh, evolutionarily? I generally just had, you know, copious access to orange juice, you know, and honey and so forth. That, that was a rare treat sometimes, right. you know, that was not something that, you know, if people were eating it at all, that they would eat a lot of, or ha- even have the ability to eat a lot of, and he feels better. I'm sure he does, you know, and if he did cocaine every day, I'm sure he'd feel great, you know, until he didn't, until he right. really, really didn't. So, you know, the issue is something else, you know, because we're just not seeing it in, in long-term carnivores and a long-term carnivore population. So it could be something else. A lot of these guys like uh, Dr. Saladino and carnivore Aurelius, they, they really advocate for a nose to tail sort of approach, which is fine. But, you know, think of the proportions. If you are eating nose to tail of a cow, cow's a big animal. Most of that is going to be skeletal fat and muscle and bone. And then you're going to have some organs, you're going to have a liver, but how many pounds of liver are you going to get per cow compared to how many hundreds of pounds of skeletal muscle you're going to get. So the proportions are very different. And so if you're eating a lot of liver every day, that's out of proportion with what, with what you'll find in nature. And, uh, you know, Dr. Saladin says, oh, when you're eating a you know naturally appropriate amount of liver, but he doesn't say like what the hell that is. And then he, you know, pushes liver supplements and so forth as well. And so people listen to that because he's an influential person. He's a bright guy. He's, he's, he's made a lot of you know, very good insights into this. And so people really trust him. And so they go, right, I'm just going to eat a whole bunch of liver because this guy said it and they, and they can come into problems. You get, you know, hypervitaminosis A can drop your TSH, which, you know, can give you low thyroid, you know? So I don't, I don't, you know, know for a fact that that's what's happening with people, but it's, it's a theoretical sort of thing. I also know that in my long-term patients and in myself, my thyroid's great. Their thyroid's great. In fact, we're healing thyroids. You know, we have people with you know, Hashimoto's disease and so forth, and they're actually uh, recovering from this and recovering from their thyroid issues. So I'm, I've in fact, in practice, seen the exact opposite. You know, people going carnivores actually help their thyroid. So yeah. I think there's, there's definitely something else going on. Yeah. Uh, same with me. So I work with, um, pretty much meat based or meat only, um, carnivore mm-hmm. clients. And a lot of them will come to me with Hashimoto's and, 
other hypothyroid symptoms. And sometimes it's just a deficiency in iodine. Like it's that simple, yeah. but it's, yeah. but you know, there's a lot of people that will blame that it's, um, uh, they're not adding, adding the carbohydrates, but it's funny because if you eat too much liver, like you're saying, you can have, t- um, if you are eating fructose, which is inundating the liver. And then if you're mm-hmm. eating a lot of, um, organ meats, then you're bought, you're, requiring your liver to store a lot of the fat soluble vitamins. Mm-hmm. And if your liver is not in good function, then that will be a hit. And then if you're eating alcohol no. and then, and so there's a lot of things, um, it's quite scary that, uh, I didn't realize carnivore Aurelius was consuming 40% orange yeah. juice because yeah. one, the concentration of fructose in juices so much higher. And Dr. Richard yeah. Johnson talks about how the amount that you're drinking and how fast it goes through your system. And obviously juice is a liquid, right. so it goes through much yeah, quicker. Yeah. And then it's kind of scary that for so many years, he was such an advocate for carnivore and now he's going the other way. So it, it almost makes you wonder, are you yeah. at your end or are you going on to another journey? And what's scary is none of them work with patients. So yeah. Sure, they talk to people on the internet and social media, Mm -hmm. but I work with the clients that dabble in those things when they're not feeling well. So, okay, maybe Dr. Saladino said, I need a little bit of honey. Maybe that's why I have no energy or I'm hypothyroid. And and that drip of honey becomes many. And then they start feeling worse or they start binging again. And if you don't work with individual patients and clients, you never see the ramifications of your recommendations. And so to flip-flop, that much and to give the people the green light to be downing orange juice, which has the same amount of sugar as like a Coca-Cola drink. It's quite yeah. frustrating and saddening. And um, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, I point out to people is the, the amount of fructose that's in these sorts of things that, yeah. you know, sort of, I sort of, you know, roughly sort of calculated this out once, but the amount of fructose, not just, you know, sucrose, yeah, because like you said earlier, sucrose um, is a disaccharide. It's one, one glucose molecule, one fructose molecule. So it's definitionely 50% fructose, you know, so it's not just when you're eating. So I was just sort of roughly figured out that, you know, fructose has the fructose that's in orange juice, just the fructose. Mm-hmm. There are as many grams of fructose in one 12 ounce glass of orange juice as out there is alcohol in three shot, three ounces of whiskey. Right. So, you know, it's roughly that. And so we don't think of that. You never give a kid three shots of whiskey, but you'd probably give them orange juice. You might even give them a few glasses of orange juice. Oh, because it's good for you because it has vitamin C. It's like, what else does it have in it? You know, as we have this sort of cherry picking mentality where you focus on one thing, maybe it's a bad thing, maybe it's a good thing, but you know, there is a complex system. So yes, there's vitamin C in there and that there's other vitamins and, and nutrients in there because this is a living organism. And there are things in there that are going to be good for living organisms, but what else is in there? There's, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other chemicals in there. You know, what do those do? Fructose is bad. I mean, that's just, that's, that's a very conclusive point, you know, like, you know, Saladino said that, well, every now and then you can have it, you know, that, that may work for him. You know, if he has, you know, he just sort of has a bit every now and then that's great. Carnival really is going crazy with the 40% thing. I don't know why you would think that's a good idea, but this is also the same guy who recommends getting sunshine on your privates every morning. So, you know, maybe there's something else going on there. I don't know, but you know, I think that sometimes you can get caught up in some of these studies and you find a study that sort of concludes something and you go, wow, that's really interesting. But is this a practice changing study? Is this something that is is so profound and shows such hard evidence 
that you know you should change your entire practice. You know, this is something we talk about in in the medical community. You know, like wow, this this was something like 2015. There were some papers that came out showing that statins actually caused harm or were at least equivocal and uh, didn't didn't you know reduce stroke or heart disease rates and in fact may have made it worse. And so this was with 60,000 patients and people were like, wow, okay, is this a practice changing? study. And a lot of people decided that it was, and there were you know, many studies since then have, have confirmed this with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients and meta-analysis and so forth. Those are practice changing right. studies. Some of these studies that Carnival Release has, has put out or Saladino has put out, I would not say that they're, they're practice changing studies. There's something that kind of shows this association with, oh, if you eat honey, then you're kind of better than this. Maybe. And, and some of these things are just looking at, you know, honey in, in comparison to other sort of sugar sources and like, yeah, fine. You know, maybe there's something in honey that, you know, provides some benefit more than just table sugar does, but it also has fructose in it and that's going to cause harm. So I don't think that these are very great studies, but you know, they, they seem to say, no, 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 this is it. Okay. Well, what about all the other studies? you know, showing how harmful fructose is. And they said, well, some of them are, are animal models. Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't count because it's an animal model. Well, you know, Lustig has done this with people and he's, right. and it's meet, it's met the criteria for causation. Okay. And so this is, this is the best evidence you know, shows and suggests that fructose is harmful to you. And biochemically we don't need it. So I don't, I don't see the point in consuming it at all, really. Right. And, you know, it's frustrating because, the, you know, especially in the times that we live in now, people use studies to prove their point. And yeah. the average person is not going to go out there and see, okay, what was the methodology and how do they collect yeah. their data? And then there's always, even with the study, the, the how they did it and what they fed and all of that is a separate document. And people don't get into all those nuances. So they look at the headlines. And there yeah. were a few studies that I saw that Dr. Saladino brought up and like one of them was recommending that for type two diabetics, honey wasn't an issue, but the right. sample size was so small and it was for such a short period. And, yeah. and then there was another study about ketogenic diets being super harmful for people. And he showed the adverse effects on your thyroid. Well, if you look yeah. at the study, it was on the population of, I think it was for autistic kids. And mm -hmm. it was for kids that were under the age of 18. So in the population of us, that doesn't really apply to us. And it was yeah. a temporary dip but we don't know again with the long term what well, would they have benefited and and that's the part that's not fair when we share studies like cuz i could do that all day too i choose not to yeah. do that i mean i'll share some in my newsletters but it's just you know it, you know a lot of people with just what's going on with the pandemic will say follow the science and it's like which yeah. scientist are you following right because every yeah. scientist has their opinion and it's really again it's i think it comes down to if you work with patients that's when your story will change and you will be a lot more cautious with what you're recommending and then what you're also fear-mongering because you know the real life people that are actually getting hurt by your yeah. recommendations and that's where i get really passionate because my clients really do get affected by these recommendations or by their fears and concerns. Mm. And then their health starts to decline. And that's when I become a super advocate of yeah. why these things are not necessarily ideal. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen sort of the aftermath of, of, you Same. know, Saladino and, and those people saying, oh, Hey, you know, you can eat some fructose and things. And, you know, when I sort of, sort of said some of the, I, I remember when I first started seeing this stuff, 
I was really taken aback mm-hmm. because I thought that was in, in this entire you know, space, I thought that was probably one of the most established facts right. that we had and that, that fructose is, is very harmful. And then, yeah. And then saying like, oh, well, you know, honey's okay for, for diabetics. You know, that's, that's cute and all, but you know, they, they, the, the official recommendations for diabetics and type two diabetics, especially back in the day was all based on the gly, glycemic index as well. And because fructose has a lower score on the glycemic index, they were actually recommending that diabetics just eat fructose. So you don't eat normal table sugar, just eat fructose. And just, and, and I remember my mom who was a type two diabetic for decades mm-hmm. um, until she went carnivore. And then in two months, she came off three of her medications, reduced her insulin down to the minimum dose and her HbA1c went from 8.9 to six, wow. you know, which is, you know, it's, um, maybe people don't know 8.9 is very high. Six is, you know, high normal for a non-diabetic and she'd been a diabetic for decades and now she's coming off her medication. And, you know, so she was, uh, recommended that she just eat fructose early on in, in this whole diabetes, diabetes story. And I remember we had a jar of fructose just sitting there on the shelf. And that was the sweetener. Thankfully she didn't really like it much. And so she didn't really use it because that would have just compounded things significantly, but that was the official recommendation. That's going to be based on something. So again, you know, like in medicine, we, we base things off, you know, maybe incomplete data, but we're making our best, our best guess at the time, the glycemic index seemed to be you know, the, the, uh, the best model for how to control diabetes. And so they made this recommendation based on that. It happened to be the exact thing that probably caused diabetes for most of these people, but it seemed to be good at the time. Yeah. So like the, these studies, you can get, you can get really caught mired up in, uh, in these sorts of things that, you know, that's one thing that you, know, you see sometimes that people get like, oh, you're looking at like little specific sort of things and, and forgetting the broad picture, you know, the classic sort of can't see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you see these little, oh, well, look at this study. And this says this, it's like, okay, but you have all this other information, all this other data with hundreds of thousands of people, you know, does this little study with five people over two weeks, does that really, right. does that really go, you know, change that maybe, but you know, to me, that's not really a study. That's, you know, that's a good grant proposal. You said, Hey, look, I had some uh, good initial results. Can I, you know, give me money so I can do this on a, on a larger scale. That's what those things are to me. Um, and, and like you say, you, know, you, you can't just read the headlines. You can't just read the conclusions because quite often that's the conclusion that the author has made to try to get published but you look at their data and it's just like, you absolutely in no way proved that. Yeah. And, you know, bringing up the glycemic index, it reminds me of the CGM. So some of these advocates will wear the CGM and say, look, my blood glucose hasn't gone up. And it's like, yeah, because you're eating mostly fructose, which doesn't. And that's exactly why they probably told diabetics before, because, you know, our body fully uses glucose for all the different areas, but fructose is primarily in the liver. Some of it's in the Mm -hmm. intestine. But in general, it's not going to be read on a glucose meter because it's yeah. fructose. And that's the part that, again, was like a little yeah. bit of misinformation when you eat fruit, since only maybe 40%, depending on the fruit, will be glucose. Well, only that 40% will be representative on your glucose right. monitor. That doesn't mean that fructose is not doing its other damage. And it's yeah. really, really unfortunate, like you were mentioning about the glycemic index. You know, as far as you know, type two diabetes and so forth, you know, Lustig showed back in 2009 mm-hmm. that fructose increases uh, peripheral insulin resistance, mm-hmm. which is type two diabetes, you know? And so you know, it's not just a, you know, the problem isn't just years and years and years of high blood sugar, which is, you know, obviously 
contributes to that significantly. But you know, that's what you use as a marker. But what's happening is that your your you know peripheral tissues, like your muscle and so forth, they're resistant to insulin, right? So you need you need you know higher levels to get you know the same amount of of uh, glucose into these cells, and so you end up getting high blood sugars and 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 prolong and uh, for a prolonged period of time. Fructose causes that alcohol causes that as well, but fructose definitely causes that, that peripheral insulin resistance. So that's actually like the source, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the blood sugar, you can sort of think of as the smoke, the insulin resistance is the fire. Okay. So we're smoke focusing on the folks and we just wave the smoke away and go, Oh yeah, got fires gone. And, well, no, you know, you're actually fueling it with, you know, giving it more oxygen. So that that's one thing. So it also, I was, you know, when I, going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, insulin being bad because it blocks leptin, right. fructose also blocks leptin. Mm. So it compounds this, uh, you know, this pathological signal of, of, you know, making you overeat because, you know, your insulin's up, you know, because you know, fructose generally coexists with glucose. Mm-hmm. And so your insulin's going to go up and you and you and that's going to block leptin. And the fructose itself is going to block leptin as well. But fructose also does something more than that, which is upregulates ghrelin. So the opposite effect of the stretch receptors in your stomach, when they're full, you release leptin. When they're empty, you really release ghrelin. And that opposes the leptin in your body to tell your brain, Hey, you know, you should probably eat or, or maybe you're okay. Even if you have an empty stomach. So now your leptin is like nothing. Your brain can't read it and your ghrelin is artificially high. And so people that eat, eat sugar, even fruit or whatever, they're going to get serious, serious, you know, hunger signals and they, they will overeat. And so even if fructose as a molecule wasn't harmful for you, it is going to cause you to overeat and overeat and overeat. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Another concern in this, I guess, space is also testosterone. Um, Some people Mm. have been saying that as you eat a meat only diet, your sex hormone binding globulin will kind of increase. And then that will then make testosterone or the free testosterone start going down. And so in Mm. general, this diet or this way of eating reduces your testosterone. And so therefore, again, it's not an ideal diet. I, I haven't seen that. Um, you know, I tested my testosterone. It's, it's fine, you know, and so like, and, um, and, you know, test this in, in my patients as well. And so, you know, we, we just, just don't see that we're actually seeing the opposite. We have a lot of people that have had low testosterone that have been, you know, previously with, you know, clinics or endocrinologists, what, you know, get on, you know, HRT hormone replacement therapy, where they're PRT testosterone replacement therapy you know, for, but men and women will get these sorts of things. I actually find that when we put them on, um, you know, pure carnivore diet, especially red meat diet, their, their testosterone and estrogen levels improve dramatically and just, just on that hard number. But, you know, it's also been shown that carnitine, which is, you know, it's amino acid that, uh, and it, you know, exists in, in meat and so forth, but there's a, you know, there's a ton of it in red meat that this actually uh, helps increase your, your testosterone receptors. So the testosterone that you have will be more efficacious if you have more receptors. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people getting a lot more benefit from the testosterone that they have because they're eating a lot of carnitine as well. But I absolutely see their, their testosterone. Correct. I, I've, I've never seen someone on a carnivore diet get worse testosterone and certainly not feel worse, you know, and that's the main thing. You know, we, we, again, we're focusing on one thing, but these things exist in complex systems, a complex biochemical systems. They have a lot of different things going on. And so, you know, if you're healthy and you're putting on lean, you know, skeletal muscle and your bones are strong and, and you're doing well, it doesn't really matter what this number is doing necessarily. Maybe it's a harbinger for something to come, but yeah. you know, it, it, 
it, at the end of the day, it's a lab test. And, you know, is a very commonly said thing in, in medicine is you treat patients, you don't treat lab tests, yeah. but I've also seen the lab tests get a lot better. So I don't know where they're coming from. Yeah. And I've seen the same. So, I mean, I do see people with lower testosterone, but the thing is we don't have the data from prior to carnivore. So some people yeah. will say, oh, it was better, but I think when people become carnivore, they listen to a lot of the content on social media and then they hear certain trigger words. So then they'll get mm -hmm. those specifically tested and then they might be low in certain things. Maybe it's normal on a carnivore diet and that may be okay. But I, the biggest concern is where were they before? And a lot of times yeah. they don't know that answer. They just know that they've tested it recently and, oh my gosh, my marker is low. So maybe this diet isn't working. And so maybe yeah. now I should be adding in supplements or yeah. carbohydrates or something to now change things. But I always wonder if you don't feel bad, maybe you don't need mm -hmm. to be changing things. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and like you're saying, it's really important, you know, knowing the before and after, because, you know, so maybe someone feels better, maybe they feel worse. Like, oh, well, this is, you know, like, like, you know, people that go like vegan or something like that. So, oh, well, I feel so much better. Okay. Where were you before? Right. You know, what were you eating before? Um, and they were eating, you know, the sugar and the drinks and the, this and the, that. And so they cut out all these things and, and they never think to themselves, well, actually all the things that they cut out were basically plant-based things, you know, right. like sugar and alcohol and so forth and, and grains or grains or, you know, fruit, you know, fructose and so forth. And, and like, or like, like nightshades and things like that, the ones right. that are, that are even, even worse, but you know, you're exactly right. You know, you can't, you can't base an isolated lab test on, you know, you can't, you can't really, you know, get too much information from that. You need to know what it was before you made the change. And then you test it at, you know, the horse is out of the barn at that point. Maybe you can keep testing them, you know, and if, if their, their testosterone keeps dropping and keeps dropping, keeps dropping while they're doing the same thing, well, maybe there's something going on there, but you know, I doubt that, that most of these guys are doing that. And, and like you say, you know, I, I had a friend of mine I was talking to that went, went carnivore and they felt amazing and lost weight and, you know, everything was going great, but their doctor was just, you know, really, you know, in that, space. is like, no, cholesterol is bad. You're going to die. You have to stop this. And he was getting really pissed off. So he's like, asking me, he's like, well, you know, send me some studies, send me some, this, and I was always sending all this stuff. And he was just, you know, combating with his doctor. I was like, just get a new doctor. Like, why do you care? He's like, no, I want this guy to know he's wrong. And so they, they did all these tests and they did like a coronary calcium score. And, you know, so looking at, at, uh, if he has atherosclerosis or any sort of plaques and he didn't, but he had, you know, had some sort of changes that were going on. And his doctor was like, ah, oh, that, that must mean that you know, this is, this is, this is from all the cholesterol. And I was like, look, you don't know what you were before. This is the first time you had that test. Right. You know, you've only been carnivore for a year or two, you know, like you, you don't, you don't know if that was, that was there before then you don't know if it was worse before then. So, you know, check it again in a year, see where you're at. You know, if it's getting worse, then, you know, think about, about what you're doing, if there's something there, but we just, we, we're not seeing this sort of thing. You know, heart disease is a very new disease. This is something that's recently described and people think, oh, well, it must've been just, you know, it must've been there the whole time and people just didn't, didn't notice it, but that doesn't really make sense because you know, we've been doing human uh, dissections for hundreds of years. You know, Da Vinci was doing you know, thousands of dissections. A lot of the artists uh, in during the Renaissance would do dissections so that they could know exactly how the body's put together so that they could you know, relay that more realistically in their artwork. You know, there's a famous statue by Michelangelo where this guy's sort of, you know, holding this cup and his, his sort of pinkies up and there's a muscle in the forearm that is what extends your pinky. And that's flexed in this statue. You know, that's someone who has a deep, deep understanding and knowledge of anatomy. That's because he's done a lot of dissections. 
people make their name in medicine by describing something that no one's seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Cushing's disease, we have Collie's fractures, we have Trendelenburg gait. These are names of people who noticed this and described it and published on it. And so, you know, if people were seeing just clogged up arteries and so forth, going back centuries, you know, you're going to, you're going to get your name out there by, by describing it. But that, that was actually quite, quite recently. Then we go back and we look at like mummies and things like that in Egypt. And we go, oh, well, actually they had some atherosclerosis back then too, but this was right at the dawn of agriculture. These guys were eating a lot of wheat and they think, oh, well, you know, the Pharaohs though, they had this because they probably had a lot of meat and fat and so forth. No, actually a lot of people were mummied. Not, it wasn't just the Pharaohs. So they're, they, they calculate that there are more mummies, mummified people in Egypt than there are people alive in Egypt right now. Wow. And so they've, they've looked at these and looked at these, um, you know, just, just normal people. They all have it. They all had, you know, uh, some, some evidence of atherosclerosis and so forth. So to the same extent as like the Pharaohs and so forth. So they were all eating the same thing. It was just, you know, maybe the Pharaohs had more access to it, had more of it. Maybe they got fruit as well, but you know, the, the normal people who were just eating a bunch of grain, they were getting this stuff too. So yeah, you know, it's something that, is very recent that we've, that we've seen it on the levels and the numbers that has, has made headway. Now it's, you know, it's the number one killer 50 years, you know, hundred years ago, this wasn't, this really wasn't even on the scene. It wasn't on the scene until, you know, president Eisenhower had a heart attack and, mm-hmm. and like, oh, what is this new heart disease? You know, doctors are talking about, it was, it was basically unknown before that. And now it's, you know, it's been the number one killer for, you know, 20, 30 years now, you know, like where'd that come from? You know? Right. So, no, I totally yeah, something, agree. Something new is happening. Right, right. And, and I completely agree. For the people that are watching this and hearing this and say, well, I just don't feel good eating meat mm-hmm. only. Uh, yeah. What would be some of your suggestions? And do you think people, I mean, obviously from everything you said, I think the answer is yes. But do you think people can do a meat only or a meat, very meat heavy diet long term? Yeah, I, I, I do think that. And I mean, you just look at you know, the natural uh, state of human of humans is, is, is eating in a carnivorous state. You know, all the hard evidence shows that humans are biologically carnivores and have been hyper carnivores for less than, you know, two, 2.5 million years, probably since, you know, the dawn of the ice ages, our ancestors who ha- who were able to live like that, were able to survive and other people weren't. And that's where we were descended from. Um, and you look at the stable isotope studies where they look, you can really tell what an animal is eaten just by the isotopes that are available in their bones of, of the fossil. And, you know, we were, we had a higher carnivore, our ancestors had a higher carnivore rating than other carnivores, like foxes, wolves, lions alive in the same areas at the same time, meaning that we were also eating those carnivores. So we were again, top of the food chain, apex predator. These are, these are words that get bandied around, but people don't actually think what that actually means. That actually means is we ate a lot of animals and we ate every animal and animals didn't really eat us except, you know, sometimes on, if they, you know, caught us slipping, but yes, you can definitely do this long-term. We have for millions of years, Mm -hmm. people that don't feel good on a meat diet. I always try to find out exactly what's going on. You know, are they, are they pure meat and water? Are they eating enough fat? You definitely need fat in your diet. Most people, they do this and they think, oh, I'm definitely getting enough fat. But that just generally means that they're eating more fat than they used to. And they basically never ate fat. And so, you know, if you're not getting enough fat, yeah, you're not going to feel your best. You need, you need the fat, at least you need enough fat anyway. And and that can mean different things to different people, but 
it's uh, you do need that for optimal health. You know, cholesterol is a precursor for, uh, you know, testosterone and estrogen and other hormones. So, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to be hormonally healthy either, unless you're getting enough fat cholesterol. And then most people go almost carnivore and then they say, Oh, I, I'm, I'm not really feeling right. I'm having all these problems. And I try to help them and troubleshoot what's going on. And 99% of the time is because they're eating things that are from a plant or artificial, like, like artificial sweeteners are something that I find people are using a lot and they make them feel yeah. awful. And they're like, Oh, well, my you know, blood sugar is awful. What, what's going on here? I was like, well, what'd you eat today? You know, Oh, I'm just eating meat. And then it turns out that no, I also had a shake with a bunch of you know, artificial sweeteners and they use stevia for coffee. I'm like, okay. So, you know, you're asking me why your carnivore diet's not working as well, you know, for you as it, as well as it is for me, but you're not on a carnivore diet. You're eating a lot of things that are toxic to your body. And the number one uh, you know, thing in, in my view is getting rid of all these things that cause harm. You haven't done that yet. So get rid of all the things that cause harm and, you know, and then let's see what else is going on. It's usually, you know, you're eating the wrong amount of fat after that, but I find a lot of people that I, I just don't feel good. One, th one thing is, you know, if you're eating artificial sweeteners, you're going to get an insulin response mm -hmm. and you can actually raise your insulin just off artificial sweeteners. And so if your insulin's up again, you're going to block your energy metabolism and you're not eating you know, outside carbohydrates, your blood sugar is going to drop and you're going to feel like crap. And so, or if you eat a little bit of carbs, they say I'm low carb, low carb is a, is a, is a dangerous place to be because you can get, you can get just under, you know, the radar and not spike your insulin and be okay. But generally you're not going to do that. Generally, I mean, even, even, you know, Tanner, you know, Atkins said 10 grams of carnival of, of carbohydrates a day was the maximum. That's like a glass of milk, you know? And so if you're having anything more than that, you know, you're going to increase your insulin, which is going to shut down your body's ability to make energy and you're going to feel like crap. So you're, you're having low carb. A lot of people feel worse, low carb than they do high carb. You know, there's a difference. It's, you know, if you're low carb, then you're increasing your insulin. You can't produce your own blood sugar, glycogen and ketones. And then you're not eating enough carbohydrates to actually fuel you. So you're actually in a worse space in yes. low carb than you would be at no carb. And so I, I always, there's always some, some little thing that is usually going on and is causing a lot of problems. And, you know, I say to people, the last 5% of going pure carnivore, you know, has about 95% of the benefits. A lot of that has to do with even a little bit of carbs will just completely disrupt your metabolism. So, you know, you can eat like pizza all day and maybe feel okay, but you know, you have just like a, you know, a couple of crackers and some milk or something like that. And you actually feel pretty crappy. You're eating much less in the long term. You're going to be much better, but you actually on the short term, you feel a lot worse. And so just getting rid of that last little bit, let your body go into that, the full, you know, natural metabolism that you're supposed to be on and, and you'll, you'll do much better. So there, I always find that there's, there's something that's going on there and you can, you can sort of weed it out. You just have to sort of just dig in to the history and what they're doing to try to find exactly what's going on. Yeah. And I'll, I would agree with you fully there. I think a lot of people will add other things because mm. maybe they miss it, or maybe it's a bridge food. And I think temporarily, if you need a bridge food, fine, but the indicator to me will be, well, people will say, oh, my clients will say, oh, I've been eating meat and I feel a really low energy. And so then they have like berries or honey at the very end of their right. meal and then they feel better and then they keep yeah. doing it. And then it's like, you know, you're just fueling with that little bit of sugar at the very end of your meal. And so they're in this like really horrible space of not, in, like you said, not enough um, carbs for energy, but then mm -hmm. not enough ketones or fatty acids for energy from fat. And so you have 
very low energy. And so you just get little dips of winds of energy from having that little bit of glucose, but it's not enough to feel good in the long term. So you got to pick a side in a sense. And so I fully agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing you, you get this little short response and you, Oh, I feel better. And so you, you, you can easily get sucked into, well, that that's better for me. And you know, it's like drinking coffee. Wow. I feel better when I drink coffee. And yeah, of course you will, you know, it's a stimulant and, um, you know, it's a drug, you know, and, and drugs can make you feel better. That's, you know, that's why they're dangerous is because they're very harmful for you, but they do make you feel better in the, in the short, in the short run. And so it's the same thing with, you know, berries and, you know, even crackers is that they'll make you feel better in the short run. And then they'll make you feel worse the rest of the day. And, and you'll get long-term problems because of that. And so you have to sort of, you know, think past that and, and realize what's going on in the grand scheme of things, you know, people, you know, when they get rid of coffee, yeah, at first you have withdrawals, you don't feel good. And, you know, same thing with, with sugar and carbs and so forth. They, they feel bad when they're getting rid of these things, they can have actual withdrawals, but then, you know, and they don't feel very good and they don't have the energy. They normally don't, they're used to getting this kick of energy from coffee or whatever, but then they find after a week or so actually have more energy and they have more sustained energy and they, and they can go longer and harder and feel better. You know, every now and then, you know, I, I, I cut off coffee completely just because, you know, I don't get sore when I work out anymore. I'm, you know, I'm sure you, you notice that sort of phenomenon as well, that, that, you know, no matter how hard I work out, I don't really get sore anymore, but when I eat, when some carbohydrates or some plant stuff get in there, you know, it would cause inflammation and so forth. And that would make me very, very sore. And I noticed that one cup of coffee, you know, I was sore for two damn days. I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. And so at first, I wasn't ever a big caffeine person anyway, but I was like, well, every now and then I would. And so I just bought like a thing of a, a bunch of caffeine pills. And I was like, okay, because I wanted the caffeine. I didn't want the 150,000 other chemicals that are in coffee. And so I just took the, the chemical that I wanted. And, you know, in the morning I would sort of take it and just wake up and go about, but then I noticed after about a week, I was like, I feel way better when I just don't take this, you know, because I have a quick hit of energy and maybe for two hours or so, I feel really good. I'm just all over the place. And I just feel really gross the rest of the day. And it's like, well, that's not really worth it. Those two hours aren't worth, you know, the next 16. And so I just, I just cut those out and I felt much better as a result of that. You know, sometimes I'll, you know, if I'm on call, like I would, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, neurosurgical residency. And so we do long hours and, and, you know, yesterday I did a 36 hour shift and, you know, I was operating all night, had three operations all night. And then I was banged straight into rounds in clinic and I did not get any sleep. I didn't even get a minute of sleep. And I was inclined, I, I was literally falling asleep, talking to patients. It was so bad. I was just desperately trying to stay awake. And the whole time I was thinking, it was like, I should drink some coffee. Um, I, I probably would have at that point, but I didn't have any accessible at the moment. I couldn't leave. But every time I've done that, where I've been desperately tired after a long call, I'd take some caffeine. I will feel better for the first minute. And then I regret it for the rest of the day. I'm like, why did I do that again? And so you can get trapped in that, oh, this, this makes me feel good right away. But think about what it's doing to you long-term sure. and think about how you feel you know, going forward. And, you know, is this something you really want in your life? You know, it's like someone, you know, sort of with an adolescent mentality with, with drugs and alcohol, well, I feel good when I'm doing it. So it can't be bad for me. It's not that bad for me. And, and, you know, you, it obviously very much is, but you know, they feel good while they're doing it and that makes them feel good at the time. So they, they're not thinking of the long-term consequences. Yeah. I really like that. Um, if we think of carbs and just, um, like coffee as all stimulants and obviously stimulants give you the oomph at first and in the short term, it may make you feel better. And there is truth to that. 
but the long-term consequences are risky. And so if you think of carbs that way, maybe it's just better to pull off the bandaid really quickly and just cut all carbs to see how you feel. And that's where a lot of times I recommend a meat only elimination diet at first. So then as you heal, if you want to add a little bit of veggies back, fine, I would Mm. never recommend fruit as the first thing. I think it would be the last thing I'd recommend, but Mm. maybe you want some steamed broccoli just for variety, not because it's good for you, but fine. But (laughs) (laughs) But after you heal and so on and so forth, but I think a lot of people just get to that point where they're like, well, let's just include a little bit. And maybe that little bit is really the, the, the impetus of why you're not fully feeling better on a Mm. carnivore diet. And I think this is where people really need to be honest with themselves and their diet and the way they're feeling. And, and so I couldn't agree with you anymore. So, you know, you brought up fat, uh, what do you kind of eat in a day? And then do you have, uh, you know, like, I don't really like talking about macros, but is mm. there a recommendation of fat that you recommend, um, for people that follow a carnivore diet? Uh, yeah. So I, you know, as I was saying, I think it's, I think it's more individual, but I think yeah. that most people are not eating enough fat. If you look Great. in, in nature, things are eating a lot of fat, you know, they eat other animals. They go for, they, they go for the fatty parts first, you know, they go for the, the belly meat, like, you know, mm-hmm. that's where bacon comes from, from the abdominal uh, muscles. And then they get into the abdominal cavity and say, oh, they're going for the organs. And so people right. like Saladino, so for, oh, see, look, organs, 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 like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's fat around the organs. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's what they're going for more than, than anything else is they're going for that fat. That's showing, you know, King lion gets to eat before any other lion gets to eat. All the other lions are like back because they'll mess them up if they go close to that thing. And so he gets the lion's share. He gets as much of what he wants and he always goes for the fattiest part until he's done. And then he stops. And you also see that as well. The, the lions will generally not eat the hind quarters that are very, very lean. They'll just leave them alone. So there's a lot of meat there. They just don't eat. And then hyenas will come in and they'll eat that. And they'll, their jaws are strong enough to crack the bones and they'll get the marrow very fatty. You look at, you know, the Inuits and so forth, the blubber, you know, they're just eating just chunks of fat, you know, the Aboriginal Australians, they would, they eat very, very high fat diet. I've actually spoken to a lot of, of the local Aboriginal people and you're know, just talking to them in the hospital. And some of these people, you know, I, I learned when I was, when I was about seven, that I just saw it on the news or something like that. There was something that came out that said that when on a Western diet, Native Americans were four times as likely to get, you know, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, you know, cancer, et cetera. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, I was like, well, doesn't that mean that the food is causing the disease? Yeah, because if if they don't eat the food, they don't get the disease. Right. And we eat the food and we get the disease. We just get it at a lower rate. You know, and what are they eating that we're not? What's a West, what's what's a non-Western diet? I never said that part, but you know what that the answer to that was it was a pure high fat carnivore diet. And so you can extrapolate that to other native populations that haven't had the exposure to the agricultural revolution and built up some resistances. And we have some resistances and other people have less resistances, but this is causing harm in everyone. And so you see the native Australian population gets very, very unwell. Like in the medical community here, you basically consider them, whatever their age is, if it says 36, basically consider them the equivalent to a 30 uh, to a 56 year old, because they just, they just, age quicker and they get more diseases uh, of, of, you know, the elderly faster, but if they only eat meat and they don't eat Western diet, they don't. And so, you know, I, I was talking to certain, and there've been studies showing that, you know, people going into the native population saying, you guys don't really normally eat this. Why don't you go back and just eat what you normally eat, which is animals you find in the bush. And they sort of did, and they you know, reversing their heart disease, reversing their diabetes, reversing their obesity and so forth and getting much, much healthier. 
And I was, I was talking to uh, some of these guys about that. And you know, one, one was a patient and he had all these sort of problems and I was just talking to him about it. And he said, he was like, yeah, you know, like that makes sense because all of his relatives that still live out in the country and just live naturally, like they're extremely fit, extremely healthy, extremely, you know, thin and strong. And, and he said to me too, I said, you know, the most important part is the fat like that. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And this is something that's been vilified for 50 years now, but it is absolutely the most important part. If you look in, in the wild, animals generally get around 70 to 80% of their calories from fat. You know, carnivores, because they eat animals with fat and they go for the fatty parts first, right? But also herbivores, because that's what they actually break down cellulose into fiber. No vertebrate animal can break down cellulose, but they have, they heart, you know, um, foster bacteria that can do that and they eat the cellulose. And as a byproduct, they kick off uh, short chain fatty acids, you know, which are saturated fats. And so like a, you know, gorilla that just eats green leaves, they, they eat the leaves, but they don't absorb the new, the nutritional content of that leaf is not what they're getting. The, what they absorb is about 70% saturated fats because of those byproducts from right. the, from the bacteria cows get, you know, about 80%, right. you know, because they're, they're more efficient at it. So fat makes the, you know, drives the animal kingdom. And so I, I use that as, as a, basic model that, you know, around 70, 80% calories from fat, but there's, there's a, maybe an unsavory way of testing this, which is, you know, how much your body absorbs. It's very hard for our body to absorb fat without bile. You can absorb some, you know, some medium chain fatty acids, you can absorb more easily, but the majority of fat cannot be digested or, or absorbed, I should say, unless uh, you have bile. Well, you make bile, you know, from your liver, you know, depending on the person you make from 800 milliliters to a liter a day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that can change and adjust and, and whatever, but it's, it's a finite resource is what I'm, is the point I'm getting at. And so if you eat more fat than you have bile for, you can't absorb it really. And so that goes out in waste. So you can think about it this way. You can trust your body that when you're eating naturally, your body's going to, um, you know, do what's right. And so if your body is going to make a certain amount of bile, you can, you can think that, well, that's my body wanting that amount of fat. And so if you give it that amount of fat, you'll absorb that and, and be fine. And most of the rest of that will go out in waste. So it's, it's very difficult, I think, to overeat fat because you can't really absorb it. You know, you can absorb some of it, but most of it goes out in waste. So you look at your stools, if they're dry and hard and it's you know, hard to get out, well, that means that your body is absorbing every ounce of fat that you've eaten and none of it's going out. And so things are dry and hard, but you get a little bit, you get enough that your body absorbs it all and a little bit extra that fat is going to soften your stools. It's just going to be in there and you're going to have soft stools and you know, water is repelled by fat. And so, you know, we go into our colon and this is why people say eat fiber because you want to move it through fast before your body can dry it out. And it's like, Oh, your evil colon is trying to take all this water. It's like, that's the point of the colon is to dehydrate that. Right. And so you're not, you're not uh, having this uh, water loss that is inefficient. So, you know, you can have your stools, can, you know, can stay in your colon until Christmas. They won't get any more dry than they are. And so, you know, if you have the fat in there, it's going to stay soft. And then maybe you have too much fat as in the sense of it's not going to harm you, but it's more, a lot more than your body can absorb. It's going to just come out you know, much quicker and you're going to have loose stools. This is where the phrase, you know, like fat through a goose comes from. That's quicker than fat through a goose. You know, because they can't absorb it just right out. And so that's how I think of it. And so I, 
sort of recommend that people look at that. And if they're having loose stools, they can pull back on their fat. If they're having really dry, hard, you know, constipated stools, they should eat a little more. And you can sort of, you can gauge how much you're getting by that, but it's, it's generally a lot more than, than people think. And because most people are used to just eating no fat at all. And so they, they'll eat a little more fat and they, oh, that must be good. But I think it's, it's, it's going to be a lot more. I certainly eat way more fat than I ever did in my life. And I, I feel a lot better for it. Yeah. I, and I agree with you. I'm a big proponent of high fat carnivore, meaning like 70%. Some people may need to start at 80. The tricky part mm. is I agree with a lot of what you're saying. The only caveat I'd say, I think the stool part, mm. that's really smart to actually do that in the long term. But a lot of people need gut healing in the beginning, just because mm, yeah. they've done like no fat. Um, that was me. I was on a yeah. low fat plant-based diet. So any amount of fat would cause me to have loose stool. So then, then yeah. I would end up with just chicken breast. Obviously we all know that that's not ideal yeah. at all. So after some gut healing, maybe you need to just stimulate mm. the bile a little bit more Then your, uh, that balance. I think it's super smart. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me, but I am an advocate of high fat because you first need to add a lot of fat to then take over the energy of the glucose that you're not having. And then once you get assimilated or being fat adapted, then you could figure out your levers and maybe you use the stool as the indicator. But I think that's really good. Um, a lot of people do eat leaner because there are still as much as they're fans of carnivore, they still have that fear of fat or that mantra of if you have fat on your body, you don't need to be eating added fat, right? Yeah. So then you're thinking you just got to use it. But if you're insulin resistant, you cannot get access to the fat stores, right? So yeah. there's all these nuances, but um, I'm glad you are a proponent of high fat. Have you noticed um, as you, because, and the reason I'm bringing this up is there is some new discussions where people are saying long-term, you can't do high fat carnivore. It, it stimulates, it makes insulin drive way too low. And so therefore um, your triglycerides start going up because the cells don't use the glucose that come from the meats. And so therefore your liver has to convert it to fats and it becomes high triglyceride levels. And so therefore long-term carnivores need to switch the fat to more protein. Have you had to do that in your 10 years of eating carnivore? Nope. No, I've never, I've never had that problem. And I, I've certainly never seen uh, people's triglycerides uh, get spiked up. Definitely not. You know, it's funny, you, you do see these, these sorts of arguments and, and they sound really good, but you know, what are they based on? You know, say, oh, well, when, when you do this and this, I'm fine. Okay. But what are you basing that on? Where does that come from? You know, like you were saying earlier, it's, you know, a lot of the time it's, you know, a study with five people over six days or something like that. And, and, you know, what does that really show you? We don't, we don't have long-term, you know, data sets on uh, people that are just eating, you know, high fat carnivore, or maybe, maybe they're looking at, they're extrapolating something from a high fat ketogenic, you know, uh, study or something like that. But, you know, ketogenic is, is, is getting is much better than eating a normal standard diet, but it's, and it's going in the right direction, but it's not carnivore diet. And it's not, it's not our biologically appropriate diet. So there's going to be other things. There. There's going to be confounding factors. So you can't, you can't extrapolate everything out of that. You can get good information in some, in some respects, but I would take it with a grain of salt. Anyway, I certainly don't see that. I don't, I don't see any problem eating a uh, high fat for a long time. I, I still do it. I melt butter into my ribeye steaks, you know, and I feel great. You know, I, I work out maybe once or twice a week when I can, I, I try to go more. And if I can go, you know, four days a week or something like that, you know, it, 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 I get very, very muscular very quickly, but then I maintain that when I don't. And, and, um, most people think I'm asking me if I'm getting ready for a you know fitness competition, things like that. And I was like, I haven't been in the gym in three months. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, I really haven't. And I eat a lot of fat. 
And so my, my body fat percentage doesn't change. Um, when I'm putting on more muscle or if I'm not working out as much, I have less muscle. My body fat percentage stays exactly the same. And so, you know, as I tell people is, you know, fat does not make you fat. Fat makes you lean, strong, and healthy. Carbohydrates make you fat by that hormonal uh, disruption with your insulin and so forth. And, you know, again, you know, whenever I think of these, these sorts of things and someone's like, oh, well, there's this study that shows that fine. I always think, what about the Inuits? You know, they're doing this generationally. Okay. You know, if they're going to get all these diseases by doing this long-term, then you'd see that and you, they, they, their population wouldn't really be able to survive because they're high fat their entire life from birth to death. And so that doesn't really hold water. So, you know, and, and, and again, this really is our evolved diet. This really is our biologically optimal diet. How, how, how is our, you know, let's put it this way we have a biologically evolved diet. We have an optimal diet, whatever that is. I, I, you know, you and I argue that's the big carnivore diet, but it is something. And so if you are on your biologically appropriate diet, that diet is not going to cause harm in the long term, definitionally, right? You know, grass is not going to cause harm to a cow long-term, you know, gazelle is not going to cause harm to a lion long-term. That's going to be, that's going to keep them the healthiest that they can be long-term. So, you know, all the hard data shows that this really is our biologically optimal diet. And so, you know, you, it's just, oh, if you eat high fat, it's going to be a problem. Why would it, you know, like that, that is what we evolved on. And, you know, you look back at different populations and so forth and we're eating mammoths There were, you know, then when we had less, you know, um, you know, you know, megafauna, we had to start eating, you know, breaking open bones and cooking things down and cracking them up. Should we get to the marrow? That's, you know, that takes a lot of effort. And there was, a, there was a point basically that people started doing that and they didn't before that. And what they think is basically they had all these, these big fat mammals that they could eat. And basically they either died from a mass extinction event or they got, you know, hunted out or something like that. And then they started eating these, you know, other things, you know, cows, horses, things like that. And uh, they didn't have as much fat. And so they started going for the, the marrow and so forth. So fat has always been a central point in, in human survival. And so it just doesn't, it just doesn't, you know, hold water for me that this is somehow going to be bad for us, that, that it's not bad for us for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, oh no, 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 now it's really bad. Like why explain to me biochemically why that would happen. Explain to me why fundamentally our internal chemistry would just, just all of a sudden just go, nope, screw it. And just, you're just off somewhere else. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I certainly haven't seen that in myself or in my patients. I've seen triglycerides go up a little bit, but there are people that are insulin resistant. So I think right. my opinion is that my clients that that is happening is because either they're eating off plan a little bit. So adding some plant-based mm -hmm. foods and they're not, you know, they kind of think of the police, so they're not going to fully tell me the truth, but, yeah. or they're just eating an excess in calories or they're drinking alcohol. So all of these things yeah. can contribute to higher triglyceride levels, but I don't see it in the people that become fully healed and their triglycerides yeah. aren't going up. So I, I don't think this impacts people long-term, but this is new science. We'll see what happens, but it's yeah. just interesting that there's always some type of disagreements or something. And I don't know if people are trying to get their name out there or what, but it's just, yeah. you know, I, I hate that it affects the people. That's what it is. Yeah. Right. So people can have ideologies and smart people can debate, but 
we have to think about the ramifications of the people. And that's where I get really livid or really passionate because anything that a doctor says, people, we are raised to think that we must trust the experts and doctors are experts. And so if the doctor says we need honey or we need to reduce our fat or we need to do something for our testosterone, then we are going to start considering that. And we will genuinely be worried because we are not the experts. And that's where I think as doctors, we should be very mindful in what we preach because it really does affect the per- the average person and the average person is listening because they just want better health. And, yeah. and so I appreciate a lot of what you shared and closing, like, are there any tips for people that are like, I don't know who to trust. There's so much information, right? We, mm-hmm. we can acknowledge that lately in the carnivore community, there is so much information and what to eat and how to eat and where to eat and et cetera, depending on who you're listening to. Do you have any Mm. tips for people? Like, I just want to eat this way because I heard Joe Rogan say it's healthy, but now Joe Rogan's adding fruit to this way of eating. Right. So um, what is the weight so that I can feel health and who do I listen to or trust or like, how do I go about this? If I'm kind of brand new. I, it, it's difficult. That's that's a very tough one because you know all these people, you know, you and I or Saladino or, or everyone has who's sort of a mix in between, or even vegans, uh, vegan doctors and so forth that argue this. You know, they have very good arguments and they, they have very compelling arguments. And when you you don't know all the information and you don't know all the you know the you know sort of the ancillary sort of studies and so forth, maybe you don't know that you know something that they're saying doesn't really make that much sense. You know, like the fructose thing, like they they've shown these studies, they're showing the science of these studies that that, that you know say that honey is really good for you, right? Um, but they're not they're specifically not showing you all the studies that you know are much more robust showing that it's super toxic. So, you know, they, there is a lot of cherry picking out there. What I would recommend is listen to everyone, listen to as many people as you can. If you have people with opposing views, see, see what their arguments are. Try to try to dig in as much as you can. And when you have two opposing theories, you should be able to find evidence with which to test them against. And so when you have some, you know, you and I talking about, you know, how fructose is horrible and Saladino talking about how it's great for you, watch his videos on why he thinks fructose is good. Then watch our videos on why we think it's bad and watch Lustig and then watch the people that we reference and, you know, like Lustig and, and sorry, I forget the, the name of the gentleman. Uh, Dr. You, Johnson. Uh, Johnson. Yeah. You know, and watch his, his sort of videos and talks and look at their research and, and read the, read the research, see if you, it's hard for people necessarily to go through and systematically pick apart a scientific, you know, scientific literature if they haven't been used to doing that, but you get used to it eventually. And at least you can look at people and say like, okay, well, this person's already arguments are actually really good. And well, you know, this guy's saying this other thing, but he's not addressing what this guy's saying. This guy is addressing that and saying all these sorts of things. So it does take work. uh, It does take effort. You know, it's hard for people to do that because it's, it's, you know, it's time consuming, but I think that's what I would recommend is you try to listen to as many people as you can and, and just say, see for yourself, if they're, you know, does this person's argument hold water? Does it, does it, you know, does it stand against this other person, what they're saying, and, and just, just go back and forth. And then you can ask questions. You know, I get a lot of people asking me questions, um, you know, on Instagram and so forth. I try to answer them as much as I can. Sometimes I, you know, it takes me a little while because it, you know, I, you know, it gets busy, but I do try to try to answer these things. And you just, you just ask these questions. First thing, first and foremost, you know, do your research, you know, see what this guy's saying, see what the other people are saying. And then if they reference studies, go look at those studies and see if you think that they're any good. Like, 
like you said, you know, some of the ones that Saladino was referencing is very small sample size over a short period of time. You know, you, you can't really draw too much from that. So yeah, it's uh, difficult is the short answer, but I think just, just trying to get as knowledgeable as you can and get as many opposing views as you can. So you can, so you make sure you're not missing anything. When I was first doing this and really getting into the research, you know, four or five years ago, I, I just started asking questions. Okay. Well, you know, if this, then that, do we have any studies that show that? And I was sort of looking at, you know, the autism rates, you know, increase at the same time as heart disease and cancer and obesity and so forth. So I was like, oh shit, you know, is autism, you know, you know, is that affected by diet as well? So sort of looking in, there's tons of, tons of studies showing that autism, you know, absolutely was affected by uh, the diet of the mother and the child early on, you know, vegans, vegetarians have much higher rates of autism, et cetera. That's a causative, not correlative study, but out of uh, Texas A&M, I believe um, for low carnitine. A specific kind of autism, obviously there are different kinds, but I was looking at this and asking questions and sort of doing that. And then I sort of asked myself, okay, what am I missing now? You know, there's a plant-based is huge. I'm looking at these sorts of things and asking and thinking about, okay, humans are carnivores. If humans are carnivores, this is what we should be seeing because we're all eating the wrong thing. And so I found a lot of data showing that and supporting that, but then I asked, okay, what am I missing? Am I missing something that these guys know about that I don't. And so I started going to, you know, vegan doctors and PhDs and nutritionists, their, their websites and looking at their YouTube stuff and trying to see, it's like, okay, what do these guys know that I don't? And I sort of, I, I went in and tried to, to see if there was something that I was missing. And I looked at the studies and I looked at their arguments and looked at these sorts of things. And, you know, my conclusion was like, now these guys, these guys have pretty flawed arguments and they're cherry picking and they're not, and they're looking at this one study and they're not looking at yeah. these things in broad reach of things, which is why when I get in discussions with vegans and vegetarians, be they, you know, doctors or lay people, I, I win. And, you know, and so, you know, you get the point we go, because I know all the arguments and I know all the, all the studies that they, that they're referencing. And I know why they're, they're not really what you know, what, uh, they're not doing what they want them to do. And so when we go point for point, study for study, I'm able to actually show why these things are, are wrong. And then they, they kind of turn around most of it, almost all of them, well, all of them have at least started eating meat. Some of them actually turn carnivore, but that's, that's what you have to do. You have to just sort of, you have to fill your gaps in your knowledge and it's, it's difficult to do, but if you just look at opposing views, like, you know, you have this person saying you should eat a lot of liver. And then maybe this person saying like, eh, you don't really need it you know, or fructose or whatever, just try to see as many people's different point of views and just see, you know, does someone else have a point of view and are they bringing evidence that maybe you didn't consider before? And maybe these other people haven't addressed or maybe just, you know, flatly ignored. And that's, uh, it's difficult, but yeah, you have to sort of be able to yeah dig into it a bit. I think that's really good. I'd add to it for people that don't know how to read the studies or don't really want to, because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't like looking at the studies. It's yeah. a lot of jargon that they have to go through. And then it's just, a lot of information. So I always say like, go a little bit with your gut feeling. So if somebody seems a little bit of like, I mean, at the end of the day, influencers are performers, right? So people right. that become popular is because they perform well. And so if they yeah. seem a little, you know, just extraordinary, maybe your gut feeling of like, I don't know if like they're super entertaining, but should I trust the content? That's something I would definitely consider. And then also your own experience. So if you try the recommendations and then you're just not feeling well, maybe that may be some truth to it. I think we forget mm -hmm. to trust our own bodies and the biofeedback that our own bodies gives us. But for some people, as soon as they eat fructose, or even if they eat liver for a while, I've had so many clients and 
emails that come to me about uh, feeling sick off of liver. And then the moment they stop, they all of a sudden had less joint pain and less low mood. Right. And so if you try it, that's just an option that you can try. And worst yeah. case, let's say I was wrong with the liver. Mm-hmm. You can always just go back and eat your liver. Right. So I think sometimes just the trial and error is also really important because sometimes a person can just be a good argumenter, even if their case is not that strong. Yeah. So sure. that's where that becomes kind of hard for, at least for people that have come talk to me and says, that person just makes a really strong argument. And even in marketing, they say you can hear the most outlandish information, but if you hear it at least maybe it's eight times, you start to believe mm. it's true. Right. right. So yeah. I'm not going to bring up any conspiracy theory. Cause I feel like somebody's going to believe it. And then I'll get in trouble for saying it's a conspiracy theory, but you know, something yeah. that we, let's say I'm saying that my shirt is blue. And if I keep saying it, then maybe people will start to believe that it's true. Right. So it's just something yeah. like that. So it's kind of tricky, but yeah, I think you made really good points. It's just listening to everything. I'm a big fan of doing that. I don't believe that we should live in silos or be dogmatic. That's where I like to pick other people's brains and to think about, am I really eating the right way? Right. So I think everything that we've talked about is super helpful. So where can people find you and your podcast, uh, your social media, and do you work with people? Yeah. As far as uh, social media is concerned, I'm, I'm most active on Instagram. It's just okay. Anthony Chafee MD. I have a YouTube channel by the same name, just Anthony Chafee MD. And I do a lot of uh, videos there and I'm just doing you know more and more, at least, you know, every week I'll put things out. And then my podcast is the, just the plant-free MD, because that's, I think that's sort of the crux of it is just, you know, avoiding plants. It's not just, you know, eating more meat, which is good, but you specifically don't want to eat these plants. I think that's an important point. So yeah, the plant-free MD and that's on Spotify and is waiting to get approved on Apple and, and, um, uh, Google and so forth. I do see patients. We have a sort of preventative medicine, functional medicine clinic here in Perth. I'm in Perth, Australia at the moment, uh, but I'm from America. My full-time gig is, is uh, in neurosurgery. So, you know, training in uh, neurosurgery, but so I do anywhere from 90 to 130 hours a week uh, in that. And then outside of that, I try to do consultations and see patients, but sometimes it's, it's more difficult. I'm trying to Sure. get that up. But I do see patients one-on-one and then other patients that I can't see one-on-one and we get something to do like consultations over Zoom or something like that, especially if they're not in Perth, we can do that. And yeah. And so I, I try to see patients that way. And then I'm very active on the outside, you know, talking to my colleague at the, at the clinic, the Rensburg clinic in Perth. And he, he really is pitching the carnivore sort of diet to all his patients. And so we talk about the results that they're getting and so forth. So even when I'm not active in there, I'm still sort of a part of that. I love that. Um, I love that you're in Australia. I mean, not really, but I do like though, that I, cause I get a lot of clients from Australia and sometimes they want to order supplements from me or something. And it's so expensive to send out there, but now I have a resource of you. And so I could recommend you actually. So that's really good. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. um, Well, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is really helpful. There's so much discussion about, we should be scared of PUFAs and we didn't even really touch upon that, but we're scared of PUFAs and it's not the, it's not the sugar, it's the PUFAs. And There's all this information that it becomes really like, this is such a simple diet, but we get inundated with so much information and the more popular something gets, there's always more opinions and that's good. We can improve a diet, but this diet is so simple. And so there's not really much improvement needed. And it's really unfortunate that there's so many competing opinions, but I'm really glad you came on and shared and, uh, you know, shared your experience. And then also the way that you've been treating patients and have um, seen people heal with a meat only diet. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
Okay, guys, I hope that this conversation was helpful, was meaty. I hope that it helps you to realize that a meat-based diet can be done long-term if you choose to do it. If you want to add back plants because of flexibility, I'm totally a proponent of that. I don't think there's any issues, but I don't think that we should be fear-mongered in believing that we cannot do a meat-only diet long-term because you absolutely can. And as he says, it's a species-appropriate diet. The thing that really got me that I'm probably going to include in Carnivore Cure version two is when he said that even omnivores and, and animals that eat plants, they only eat a certain variety of them. It's not like cows eat everything. They eat certain kinds that are species appropriate. It's quite fascinating if you think of it in that perspective. I hope that this discussion helps you to figure out what makes sense for you and your individualized diet and know that there is no right answer for everybody. For some people, some things may need to be altered, but I hope that you guys realize that This is a conversation to just challenge some of the narrative that's out there and to just really help our community get back to root cause healing. Okay, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.